It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, May 1st, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. It's decision time for the Supreme Court. You've taken all your notes, you've been to all the lectures, and now it's crunch time. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Retirements, redistricting, and high Republican hopes are adding fire to some interesting midterm races. But do Democrats have a path to maintain control, or is it too early to say? History tells us that the president's party struggles in the midterm, and that can be exacerbated by having an incumbent president who's unpopular as Joe Biden is. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Students across the country are cramming for finals, maybe starting to write those end-of-term papers before the long-awaited summer break. And you know, some of the brightest minds in our government are no different. The U.S. Supreme Court has until about the end of June to finish up writing those lengthy opinions before a summer recess. This past week was the last session of oral arguments this term. Wednesday, as the cases were submitted, Chief Justice John Roberts took note of a milestone. And now, uh, as many of you may know, uh, Justice Breyer has announced his retirement from the court, effective when we rise for the summer recess. That means that the oral argument we have just concluded is the last the court will hear with Justice Breyer on the bench. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving, questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. (laughs) But Breyer's work is not done yet, nor is the court's. So let's recap the term so far and the opinions that lie ahead with Fox News chief legal affairs correspondent and Fox News at Night anchor, Shannon Bream. You've taken all your notes, you've been to all the lectures, and now it's crunch time. you got to get ready and get those finals in. And so that's what they're doing. Um, They still have, as you well know, cases from last year that are part of this term that haven't been decided yet. So they've been feverishly working on those for months, but now they've wrapped up the last batch of new cases that they will try to get through this term. And so the cases they hear late, um, like this week, this last week in April, they hear them. Um, Those cases are really under a time pressure to get those out by the end of June, but they somehow always get it done. (laughs) Do you expect sort of, because there were some high profile ones and we'll get to the specifics, but obviously you look at like the, the, prayer at the football game, which was argued this week. You look at maybe the uh, southern border cases, which may kind of have a earlier deadline on them. You look, obviously, at like the Mississippi abortion case. All of those you still think are probably late June? You know, I don't know. I had heard early on that there were some um, close to finished writings going on with the Mm -hmm. abortion case out of Mississippi, which was heard last year. But you would imagine, depending on what the court decides to do with it, it's going to be potentially a landmark decision. So I feel like it should go into the end of June only because you want them to um, both sides fully flesh out. And I fear this is going to be one of those opinions that is going to be a plurality, meaning there's not a clear 5-4 or 6-3, that it's, mm-hmm. it may be a mishmash of opinions and concurrences and dissents. 
um, getting us to figure out, okay, what does this exactly mean for Roe v. Wade, if anything? So I do think that will probably come later. But um, my understanding was that a lot of progress had been made by both sides on that case even earlier this year. Interesting. So, I mean, what are the options? This isn't uh, you sort of just alluded to it. This is not necessarily uphold row, mm-hmm. strike down row. There is a lot of middle ground, I guess, that the court could cover. Yeah. And I don't know how you felt after the arguments, but it seemed apparent to me that at least they were leaning towards upholding that Mississippi law, which bans most yeah. abortions after 15 weeks. I think that was sort of the consensus that that's but, where they'll go. But, but you don't know where they're going to draw the step? line. Right. Do they go the next step yeah. going um, back to Roe and its progeny, you know, Casey and all the follow up cases? I think that's where we're just sort of in limbo with that Jeopardy music playing. Like, what is going to happen here? Because we've seen in the interim, states have gone one of two ways. A lot of them have passed trigger laws where um, in the, you know, redder, more pro-life leaning type states that, listen, if Roe was overturned, then we are also going to outlaw most abortions here. Or they're going ahead and proactively saying, um, we're a blue state, we're more progressive and liberal, and we're passing a law that says if Roe's overturned, we want to extend the availability for people to have an abortion in the state. So the states are getting ready and we all simply wait. I mean, because this decision and if they uphold the Mississippi law, that's a 15 week ban, which is a lower threshold than Roe, but maybe that's where they set the line. That would sort of answer some of the other trigger laws you're talking about. I know some states have put in, you know, six-week bans or Mm -hmm. they call them heartbeat bills and things like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And others who've said, we want this to go further so that women will have more options. So um, it's going to be interesting to see if they say with us, if, if they take a chip at Roe to say, all right, we're giving states X amount of leeway to decide their abortion laws within this framework, a new framework. It's something different than Roe. So, um, I, yeah, I think states are scrambling, um, governors and, and legislators at the state level trying to figure out what they can do until we get that answer. Um, but I have a feeling it is going to be one of the biggest cases we've heard maybe since same-sex marriage. Yeah. And one that maybe, as you point out, tough initially when, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to go through it. nightmare what scenario. Exactly it means. It's 700 yeah. pages long and there are 14 opinions. <laughs> right. Please don't do that to us. I will uh, defer to your reporting on that day. <laughs> um, You're pretty sharp, my friend. <laughs> let's talk about what was argued this week. Um, and, and let's start with this case out of Washington State. This, uh, I guess, former football coach disciplined by the school district. He was, what, after football games, praying on the 50-yard line of the football field. So that's school property. He's a school employee. Is that the dispute here? What the the level of open uh, expression of faith can be Mm -hmm. when you are a government employee on government property? Yeah, I think that the school is worried that it would look like government action or um, advocacy on behalf of any particular religion. Mm. So that's that's what they're worried about. But but. The strange thing to me is that this is one of those rare Supreme Court cases where the two sides don't even seem to agree on the facts. I mean, this has gone through the lower courts. That's where the fact finding happens. And yet, you you know, the court will choose a question presented. The court will say, this is the question we're going to decide. So, you know, his team argues he just wants to pray alone, silently on the field for like 10 or 15 seconds. He told God he would make this commitment to say, like, win or lose, I'm going to give you the glory. And thank you for, you know, watching over the players, that kind of thing. The school says no. He wants to be able to pray aloud and kind of give a speech. And he wants that to be a guarantee that students can be there as well. He says he never invited them. They invited themselves and he didn't discourage them. So they don't even agree on what he's asking for or why he was disciplined or whether he was actually fired. I mean, there's so much 
much factual yeah, dispute in this. Yeah, because the district said he wasn't fired, right? right? They said that his contract wasn't renewed. Right. And he didn't reapply for his job. Right. So he was suspended. I mean, that I think they agree yeah. on. But what happened after that? Um, I just would think by the time it's been through the district court and the appellate court and it gets here and it's been through the courts multiple times, this is seven years of this, that they would agree on the facts. But they, the court, the Supreme Court's going to actually have to wade through that and figure that out before they can get to the crux of, you know, where does the line get drawn for a public employee that can be seen, um, you know, in public doing something that is a faith demonstration mm-hmm. and still not cross that line between the government looking like it's endorsing any particular religion. You know, his legal team says... Well, what if a teacher prays over their lunch um, at their desk or in the cafeteria? What if somebody's wearing a yarmulke or a hijab or something else? I mean, where do you draw the line on religious expression, wanting um, free American people to have the right to do that, but in a way that doesn't entangle it with government? What is the the precedent? Is there sort of a, a case here that is sort of the groundwork that the Supreme Court's going to have to decide if they uphold it or not? Where it, I mean, it seems like these types of cases are... Decades old. I, mm-hmm. I sort of thought a lot of this was settled. Sort of school districts were pretty clear about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of jurisprudence on whether it's a student led situation, mm-hmm. um, that that's going to be completely hands off, that that if students um, want to do something or have these, you know, see with the flagpole thing where they initiate mm-hmm. and have prayers. I mean, that's going to be protected. Um, so I, long as teachers aren't right. leading it, aren't participating in exactly. it, aren't encouraging students to attend. Yeah. And I think that was the concern we heard again and again with the coach's case on Monday. Um, not only from Justice Kavanaugh or Kagan, but Kavanaugh as well, both saying and uh, he famously coaches um, youth sports. And mm-hmm. so he says, well, what if I think this is going to get me playing time if I go to the prayer or if I don't go to the prayer, I won't get playing time. And, and Kagan brought that up as well. You know, that's something I've asked the coach about multiple times. And he said over the years he was coaching, he had two different players come to him and say, I'm not cool with this. And he made them both team captains. He said, I want to have somebody that's got leadership that can stand up for themselves and can can um, go against the tide if they need to go against the grain because they have their own views and convictions. So there were still parents and people who said, you know, my kid would go and not really close their head, uh, you know, close their eyes and bow their head. Um, but they felt like they needed to be there or their playing time would be affected. What is the coach asking for? Is this really just sort of trying to set new new ground rules or does this former coach intend to get his job back? What's the Supreme Court doing from sort of a what's to gain here mm-hmm. for, for either side? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, he lives in Florida now. And so, again, I have asked him multiple times, would you take this job back in Bremerton, mm-hmm. Washington State, if you got a chance? He said, in a heartbeat, I would be on the next plane. Okay. Um, he says, you know, his his heart is in this. He loved mentoring the kids and being with them through the good and the bad and kind of doing life with them and, and feeling like young men um, need positive role models. And he saw himself that way. So he wants that job back and says, uh, if this case comes out in his favor, uh, he will go back to that coaching gig. The reason I asked that question is because I was curious sort of what the breadth of an opinion from the court could be, right? Is this an opinion that is likely to be very narrow, specific to this case and these facts and mm-hmm. this school district and this former coach? Or is it an opinion that is going to be much more wide ranging and sort of changes the way that schools think about allowing uh, public expressions of faith? Yeah, I, I think that's just as with abortion or any other case we're discussing up there this term, how far does it go? I mean, I have always felt like under the Chief Justice John Roberts leadership, the Roberts court has been pretty narrowly tailored. They don't do big, broad, wide sweeping um, opinions. I mean, it occasionally happens. But when he's, you know, counting the votes and corralling the cats, it hmm. seems to be a narrower decision. So 
listen, there there was discussion about sending this back down to the Ninth Circuit for another bite down there, um, which the coach's attorneys, Paul Clement, was really strong in his closing, like, we do not need to do that again. We do not need to continue this seven-year legal battle. This court needs to draw clear guidelines for public employers, local and state governments to know exactly what employees who work in a public position can and can't do when it comes to faith in the workplace. So they're asking for really clear direction, and we'll see what the court's willing to do. Let's talk about one of the last, I guess the last argument, one of the last arguments argued this term um, deals uh, with immigration, deals mm-hmm. with the border, deals with uh, the, it's called the remain in Mexico policy uh, that the Trump administration put in. Lower courts have refused the Biden administration from lifting it. Let's start with that. Why can't the Biden administration end the policy that was put in place by its predecessor? Well, think about DACA and what we went through in the Trump administration with that and how the court says, you know, you can't just willy nilly put out a memo that says, and I'm now rescinding this policy. I mean, there has to be a framework, a legal basis, uh, an explanation that's more substantive in nature if you are going to repeal something um, of that nature. And so. Listen, it cut against President Trump, and in this case, it may cut against the Biden administration if the court doesn't feel like there's been enough of that framework to give an explanation uh, for this process. So that that argument seemed a little bit muddier to me, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of that there wasn't a clear path that they were taking. I thought a lot of the arguments were muddy, if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, immigration law is kind of a challenging. Mess. It seems contradictory. I think the chief justice kind of made that point. Um, that on the one hand, Congress says do something, but on the other hand, they don't fund it. Um, right. That's a problem. Because if so, they're saying we can only hold so many people when they come here for asylum um, request and we need to mm-hmm. to take care of them in the meantime while we're weeding through that. And, you know, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of those a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if Congress doesn't provide the funding for it, then what happens to those people? So, you know, there's a lot of discussion if, you know, multiple administrations have been in violation of the way the law is supposed to work. And sometimes you just get into a practice that becomes the norm, but it doesn't necessarily comport with the law. And it seemed like a lot of the conversation on this immigration case was going in that direction. Is this really a a case about immigration or is this a case like so many that this court has faced about sort of administration, right? Mm -hmm. How how sort of administrative law, how laws are written and how they're implemented and, and how much discretion you give to agencies. I do feel like it's more about the executive branch uh, yeah. and kind of how they will roll out policies or try to get rid of former um, administration's <laughs> policies. I do think it goes less to immigration, although that's certainly a chunk of this case, mm-hmm. but more to the procedural and what a president or an administration can get away with acting unilaterally versus something going through Congress. Finish with um, a nice moment, I thought, on the court. His arguments were ending on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, the Chief Justice noted that this was likely the last uh, oral argument that Justice Stephen Breyer participated in. He got a little, uh, hmm. I don't know, his voice cracked a little bit. I, I think he's sad to see his colleague go. I know. And you know what? Justice Breyer is one of those folks who you just got to love him. I mean, he's kind of like my worst nightmare um, legal professor that I had because he is known for doing these hypotheticals in court. <laughs> and they're where, wild. <laughs> they're wild. And I'm like, don't follow him down this path. You're not going to like the ending because you know what you're there to argue and the, the facts of your case are what matter. But then he wants to extrapolate that out and say, well, what if aliens landed here and you had to explain this policy to them and they asked you how a law is passed? And I mean, he just... 
is known for that. But he's really such a warm, engaging person that I think all of his colleagues truly love him and will miss him. He does this thing usually, although COVID has kind of knocked it out the last couple of years, he does this end of session or end of term lunch with the journalists who cover the court. Hmm. And we go to this little, um, not fancy Chinese restaurant, but a place he loves. And they give us a little private room. And he is so funny and engaging that you can ask him anything. He's very smart. Like, he's not going to give you one clue about any of the pending decisions. But I'm hoping maybe he'll feel comfortable enough this year, especially it being his last, that he'll have that lunch for us again so we can all spend that time with him and say goodbye. It's always at a Chinese restaurant, huh? It's his favorite little Chinese restaurant on Capitol Hill. He loves <laughs> I did it. Not know that. What a wonderful story. We'll yeah. see him. Who's the justice that, that takes up that, uh, that tradition? I don't know. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh does a lot of like brown bag. You can bring your lunch and go have a snack with him. The chief justice normally at the end of the session, too, will do a very nice lunch for the press corps over at the Supreme Court. Um, But again, COVID has knocked that out the last couple of years. I'm not sure if they're ready to get back to that stuff just yet. Well, it certainly uh, means a a sort of turning of the page that happens at the Supreme Court. Um, What sort of happens um, with the formal? I, I know that it's not maybe not unusual. It's unusual in sort of recent memory that you have this confirmation of a new justice months before they take the bench. Mm-hmm. Is justice to be uh, Jackson? What's she doing the next few months? She can't hear arguments on the lower right. court, can she? Right. So still Judge Jackson or can she? at this point. You know what? That's a good question. I'm not sure if she is formally I know sometimes walked they away don't from because the... They don't want to hear like appeals. That they right. Have to they don't want to hear justice. something that's going to end yeah. up with them. But so she's technically Judge Jackson at this point. Okay. So there won't technically be an opening until Justice Breyer retires at the end of June, whatever that final day is, sometimes bleeds into July where they give us the last opinion yeah. of the term. We've been there. Yeah. And you know how crazy <laughs> those days are. the warmest day of the summer. We're it's outside. It's 1,000 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and you have complete ulceritis. Um, it's so stressful. But that will be his final day that he has signed off on the last opinion he'll sign off on. And she will hit the ground running. So she'll immediately be you know, sworn in the two formal oaths that she has to do. And she'll become Justice Jackson. And listen, she has been a federal judge long enough that she has got clerks and all kinds of experienced people who've worked with her who it'll be great for her that she's got a team to just hit the ground running because they're already, you know, briefs and documents and all the cases they'll start start hearing in October. So it'll be a very busy summer for her getting up to speed. Well, she'll get her rest uh, uh, maybe between now and then. Maybe <laughs> Having not. made it through uh, confirmation, maybe a little well, bit. Well, listen, you probably do need a bit of a break after yes, this confirmation. Yes, a little recovery hearing, time. Regardless of who you are. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Shannon, I, I love so much uh, talking to you. Uh, congratulations on your second New York Times uh, bestseller as well. Thank you, Jared. I'll see you soon. History tells us the party opposing the current sitting president does well in the first midterms after an election, and Republicans only need five seats this fall to gain a majority in the House. But with the president sinking poll numbers, issues surrounding the economy, and even some Democrats disagreeing with the president about his handling of the border, some Republicans are hoping for even bigger wins than the opposing party has seen in years past. Real Clear Politics founder Tom Bevan told Fox's America's Newsroom this past week Democrats have to make a choice, appease progressives or those independent and swing state voters. Whether you look at immigration, whether you look at student loan debt, it's not a guaranteed political winner for the administration. It might curry favor with the base, but it will turn off independents and, and working class voters around the country um, on inflation. The same thing. The administration is stuck because they have to have an, a galvanized base. You can't win a midterm without 
base turnout, but you also can't win it without swing voters and swing districts. Some Democratic candidates in more vulnerable districts are pushing back in their primaries. Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar told this podcast last week how he's positioning himself in his runoff with Democratic candidate Jessica Cisneros. When you have an opponent that is for open borders, wants to defund the police, wants to get rid of oil and gas jobs, wants to cut ICE in half, wants to turn Border Patrol agents, and I quote, into environmentalists, patrol the river, so, you know, check the quality of the river, then there is a big difference between the far left and myself. Even after redistricting, Cuellar's seat is still considered lean Democrat. But polling and voting returns show Latinos in the border areas of Texas are more open to Republicans than they have been in years before. Add to that more than 50 members of Congress retiring, most of them House Democrats. So what will it take for each party to either gain control or keep control this fall? Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate are extremely narrow. Kyle Kondik is managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball. Um, History tells us that the president's party struggles in the midterm, and that can be exacerbated by having an incumbent president who's unpopular as Joe Biden is. Uh, And so I think Republicans have to feel really good about their position in the House and I think optimistic about the Senate, although the Senate, I think, is is, is more competitive and more up in the air than the House is. What's... I don't even know if we have like an average number, but what is the average seat loss in the first midterms after a presidential election? I know it varies sort of wildly, but it seems like pretty consistent that there's a loss. Um, you know, I don't I don't really look at it in terms of uh, first or second midterm. And so I don't have those numbers at, at hand. But since World War Two, the average um, uh, House seat loss for the president's party uh, in midterms is about 27 seats. So you think about that in, in, in the context of 2022, Republicans only need to net five seats. You know, uh, just actually just a five seat game would probably be on the lower end of, of what you right. might expect in a midterm. Uh, in the Senate, the uh, average seat loss is is more is is is, is about three and a half. And um, but there have been a number of midterms where the the president's party has either held their ground in the Senate or actually a, a handful of times actually gained Senate seats. One of those instances was 2018 when the Republicans uh, netted a Senate seat. Um, even though the, the environment was very poor and out now a big part of that was um, the makeup of the Senate seats being contested in 2018. You know, the difference between the House and the Senate, obviously, is that all the House seats are up every two years. Right. Um, so it's the same, you know, it's the same number every time. Whereas in the Senate, um, you know, it's just a third of the body up and, and the, the partisan composition of the three different Senate classes really varies. The the one in 2018 is a very Democratic leaning uh, block. The other two are more Republican leaning. And so one of those is up this cycle. Let's let's talk about the House, because I feel like a, there's a lot of focus on the Senate. It might be easier because there's fewer people and bigger names. But when you look at the House, where do you see the most obvious pickups for Republicans? I don't know if you've got like a list in your head <laughs> of like a few names, but where do you see the most pretty, pretty most obvious signs that this is going to turn away from the Democrats? Uh, there aren't that many Democrats who are going to be defending um, Trump won districts uh, this this year. Uh, the, as of the, how the maps are drawn right now, it looks like there are only five Democrats in Trump won districts. Um, Sidney Axney in Iowa is uh, um, is one of those members. Jared Golden in uh, in Maine is another one. There there are a few others, and those numbers might change a little bit once the maps are completely finalized but you know those are that's the sort of the lowest hanging fruit i think for for republicans and then more broadly speaking there are a lot of 
marginal seats across the country. Uh, um, the Democrats are defending a number of vulnerable seats in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. Um, Republicans also had um, gerrymanders that benefited them in specifically in uh, Texas and Florida and Georgia. So those are all states where, you you know, the Republicans are, are likely to uh, have a bigger house edge in those states than they do now. Hmm. Um, but it is interesting that a lot of the, you know, we, we think of the, the most competitive states across the country as places being like, you know, as being like a Michigan and a Pennsylvania, yeah. North Carolina, and Nevada, you know, all those states have competitive house races. And so, you know, those are those are also where you, you might find, uh, um, you know, places where Republicans are, are hoping to make uh, hoping to make gains. And are there any likely pickups for Democrats, even if it doesn't end up being enough to get, you know, or to keep a majority in the House? What are they hopeful about? I think I'm looking at California there, right? Yeah, so the, the, there are there are a few uh, a few Republicans defending you know, double digit Biden seats out in California. Although, um, you know, those members were able to win kind of similar kinds of seats in 2020, so um, they very well may be may be able to do so again in, uh, in in 2022. So I wouldn't say that any of those California seats are sort of locks to to flip to the Democrats. Um, and you know, the Democrats had had uh, gerrymandered New York State to create some targets there. So like Nicole Malatakis, for instance, who just won the Staten Island-based uh, Congressional District 2020, she was in a lot of trouble on the old map, but uh, the, the state's court, or the, the, the state's highest court in New York threw that map out right. uh, recently. And so presumably Malatakis is going to be in better shape. And, and also there's a uh, open seat on the uh, kind of end of Long Island that's a historically kind of a swing seat held by Lee Zeldin, who's running for New York governor um, at the moment, Republican. And uh, that was also going to be a very attractive Democratic pickup target, but maybe won't, maybe won't be now once the map is, is redrawn. So those are some of the ones that uh, Democrats were hoping to target. Um, there's a, a, a redrawn seat in Illinois that Democrats drew that, that they, they want to be able to pick up that's in the sort of central part of the state. But, you know, they, they may not be able to pick up that seat in, in the context of 2022, given how uh, just challenging the environment is. But, you know, really, if you look at like the the seats that we view as the most competitive, if you look at where the, the media markets, where the de- big Democratic outside or Democratic and Republican outside groups are booking uh, television airtime for the fall, it's overwhelmingly a list of Democrat, currently Democratic held seats. Um, many of them are ones that Biden won, but but some of them are ones that Biden won by less than he won nationally, about four and a half points. Um, and many others are ones that Biden only won by single digits. And so um, even though there are places where that were more Democratic than the nation in, in 2020, um, they're still competitive, particularly, again, in the context of, of, uh, of an electoral environment that you expect to be tilted toward the Republicans. Yeah, it's interesting how everybody sort of looks to the past to sort of determine the future, right? Like how close was the margin in 2020? Um, when I look at different power rankings, if, if you look under like leans Democrat, like which seats lean Democrat, there are roughly, I think, like 11 seats if you look at Cook Political, and some of them are open. And all of them are held by Democrats, right? It's lean Democrat, and they're currently mostly held by Democrats. But if you look under leans Republican, a lot of those seats are currently held by Democrats. And I'm just wondering, what do we make of that when we look at the, the vulnerability? Um, because if it's lean Republican and it's being held by a Democrat, I'm not used to necessarily seeing the lean seats for one party be currently heavily occupied by the other. Yeah, look, and we do our own um, 
ratings at the at the crystal ball of the various house seats and you know we we show something similar in that you've got a number of uh, open uh, democratic held seats that are um for various reasons favored to flip to the republicans so there's one in south texas texas 15 which yeah. you know republicans redrew made it turn it from a narrow biden seat to a narrow trump seat that republicans are favored to flip there's a uh, open seat in uh, wisconsin wisconsin three which is um uh kind of lacrosse and eau claire and and, and uh, sort of western southwestern wisconsin that's a very heavy kind of uh, barack obama to donald trump area um and uh, and again the democratic incumbent there ron kind retired so that's a that's a seat that's very likely to flip to the republicans just if you look at those kinds of seats historically speaking basically ones that the president's party is trying to defend as an open seat and they voted for the other party for president in the last election those seats basically almost always flip i think the last time in a midterm oh. a party successfully defended a kind of seat like that was was 1990 so um that's a you know, and, and you could say it's, it's the same thing about that Texas seat, that that's a, a Trump seat that Democrats are trying to defend as an open seat in a midterm. That's a really heavy lift. So, yeah, there are some uh, there are some you know current Democratic uh, seats that are that I think are currently favored to flip to the Republicans, which speaks to, you know, some consequences of redistricting, but also uh um, just the, the, the political environment. Um, there's an incumbent, Tom O'Halloran, and a Democrat out in Arizona. His yep. district uh, got worse for him in redistricting. He's still running for re-election, but is a, is a pretty significant underdog to win another term. Yeah, and he's come out against uh, saying he disagrees with the president on his handling of the border. So we're seeing a lot of that from some of those Democrats in vulnerable seats. I do want to ask about redistricting. Several states have had quite the legal process. Ohio's map, I think, was tossed out like three times. There have been issues in New York, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio. I think at last check, Missouri and New Hampshire don't even have a final map yet. Do we have any sort of broad statement to make at this point? Like, okay, Republicans or Democrats on the whole are more favored with these new lines. And is it, is it the Republicans? We, we were talking a lot about that heading into redistricting. Yeah, it's been kind of a long and winding road on redistricting. <laughs> We're not at the end of it yet. However, you know, Republicans going into this process controlled the drawing of more districts than Democrats did. I think it was um, 187 for Republicans, only about uh, uh, 70 some for the for the Democrats. And you know, one of those states that we were sort of debating as to who controls the drawing is is New York, where it looked like Democrats were just able to draw a favorable map for themselves, but the state Supreme Court intervened. So it looks like New York's probably going to get like a relatively neutral map as opposed to a Democratic leaning one, meaning that the status quo there may may sort of uh, remain in place as opposed to the Democrats being able to net some more seats out of uh, or substantially more seats out of um, out of New York state. So, you know, the one way of looking at this is and, and this is, again, a story that's still being written is, is, you know, if you if you rank all 435 seats in terms of their partisan performance and you say, look at, you know, like the presidential results, and you go from, you know, Trump's best district all the way to Biden's best district. You know, if you look at the median seat, it could kind of tell you. Um, what sort of the bias of the um, of the of the map is overall, um, and uh, you know, in in the 2020 election, the the median seat voted for Biden by about two and a half points, and Biden won nationally by about four and a half points. So you could say the the median seat had a, a Republican bias of a couple of points. My guess, when it's all said and done, is that is that the median seat's probably going to look somewhat similar to that, um, meaning that 
there's not like an overwhelming Republican bias collectively, but um, but there is a Republican bias, I think, on the on the map. So that's that's sort of what I'm expecting. But again, um, you know, with with a big state like New York still outstanding, with um, a few other states still to go, with legal action going on still in some states, you know, I hesitate to kind of give a give a, a specific number on that. What is the path forward, Kyle, for Democrats? Like, is it is it too early for them to worry? It doesn't seem like it is. They, they all sound worried. But like if the fall approaches and inflation has eased somewhat or we're not talking about a new COVID strain, does, does the load lighten for Democrats? Or is this just a math game? Like you've only got a five seat margin. History tells us you're going to lose it. Now just try not to lose the Senate. I think I think the latter is, is correct. I mean, in some ways, I think the, uh, the, the, the cake is somewhat baked. The, the midterm environment is um, uh, is, is, is such that, you know, it's just it's just it's just bad out there for Democrats. And, you know, if, if even if the signs kind of improve over the course of the, uh, you know, over the course of the summer, you know, it can if, if people's impressions are already negative, it could be sort of hard to change minds. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's again, that's just sort of where it's at. I don't know if it's, you know, if the, the future is completely written in stone and there, there are twists and turns to go. I think that the issue of abor- abortion could potentially be important um, given what the Supreme Court might yeah. say about the, about abortion, um, which, you know, which of course we don't know at this point. Uh, but, uh, um, but, you know, I think that, that the Democrats are sort of running out of time in some ways, even though the election is still far away, because there are instances in the past where, you know, there have been like bad economic indicators or something, and those indicators have gotten better closer to the election, but it was sort of too late for the for the president's party. Um, let's talk about the path uh, in the Senate. I, we were talking to a, a Republican strategist, I think a couple weeks ago, and he said that the path is not simple, straightforward, or easy for Republicans in the Senate, even though we're looking at places like New Hampshire and Nevada and Arizona, um, where there are some vulnerable Democratic seats. Um, what's your take at this stage uh, with with the path forward for both parties in terms of the Senate and in terms of vulnerabilities? Um, you know, I think there are some legitimate questions about um, the the strength of the various Republican candidates in some of these states. You know, like Herschel Walker, for instance, in Georgia, who's the likely nominee. You know, he's never run for anything in the past. There are some. Uh, questions about his about about his past and some of his business dealings, some of his, his personal life, et cetera. Um, so you know, it, it, and it's look it's possible that Walker will turn out to be a good candidate, win the seat, and or maybe he turns out to be a bad candidate, still wins the seat because of the political environment. Competitive primary in Arizona. Um, you know, the likeliest nominee in Nevada is Adam Laxalt, former state attorney general, um, who, you know, I think is a credible candidate. But um, you could argue that, uh, that that maybe, you know, maybe Republicans could have fielded a, 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 a stronger candidate uh, out there. Um, you know, so, again, there's there, there are questions about the, um, you know, about the quality of the candidates on the Republican side. But but I would just say that the the political environment is so enticing that at the end of the day, you'd expect the Republicans to be able to get at least the net one seat they need, um, even though, it, again, it's, it's, it's not a sure thing. How dicey, Kyle, is Ohio from a Senate perspective? I know, I know former President Trump says J.D. Vance can win, and that's why he chose him. But the Democrat, Tim Ryan, the, he's the likely nominee, uh, running a, he's running a campaign on you know, the jobs, manufacturing, China, that he's really focused on China almost sounds a little Trumpy himself, at least when it comes to economic issues. But could you imagine two senators from Ohio being Democrats in, in a state that we think is trending red? 
I mean, I think it definitely is trending red. And and look, I think that Ryan is is a you know is a credible candidate. Um, but I also think that you know while Vance has said, um, you know, Vance is a basically a rookie candidate himself, and he's uh, I think he said some kind of outlandish, inflammatory kinds of things. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think that Vance is some sort of at least I, if he is in fact nominated, and you know, the primary is so competitive. If he is in fact nominated, I think we we should presumptively say that that you know I think that, that he would be the, the favorite for the for the November, and then we'll sort of see how the campaign develops. But um, I don't think that uh, you know that, I think there's been a fear that that the Republicans would nominate you know like a really poor candidate in, in Ohio, and I don't I don't think Vance is that. I mean, maybe he proves to be that, but I don't sit, think that he's obviously some sort of big problem if if in fact he gets. Uh, um, he, he, he gets nominated. So, uh, and you know, look, I can see that being, you know, close-ish and competitive, but at the end of the day, given the environment, given the way Ohio has trended red in recent years, I think you, you definitely would rather be the Republican nominee to start that general election. Um, even though Ryan, again, is a, is a perfectly respectable candidate, will be probably running a good race. Okay. Last one. You wrote a book about Ohio. I haven't read it yet. I plan to. Um, and it, it, Pretty much, I, I believe it focuses right on on how Ohio picks the president and why that is. And we've often heard, uh, if if you pay attention to this sort of thing, that the road to the presidency, you know, goes through Ohio. Can you give me some updated thoughts about Ohio after 2020? Um, obviously, they went with with Trump, and everyone in politics and their mother says Ohio's now red. But Biden is president. What what is your, I guess, updated take if there is one? Uh, you know, the, the, the name of the book I wrote is called The Bellwether, and I think that you can make <laughs> a, a good case, as I did, I think, I hope in the book, that over the course of, you know, the late 1900s through 2012, that um, no state was better reflective of the nation in presidential voting than Ohio was. However, yeah. Ohio was not very reflective of the national voting in 2016, and certainly was not in 2020 either. And so I think Ohio's days of being a presidential bellwether are over so, uh, uh, you know, it's again, it's a state that's trending Republican. Um, you know, you could find certain parts of the state um, where Democrats are improving, but they're sort of swamped by the, the parts of the state where Republicans are improving. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, again, look, if, if Trump were still in the White House and you had a, you know, you'd, we'd probably be talking about the Democrats being in a good position because of the midterm, then maybe we would be talking about Ohio as like a, a real genuine Democratic pickup opportunity in the Senate. Of course, Sherrod Brown was reelected in a good Democratic environment in 2018, but that's not the world we live in right now. It's a, you know, it's a, um, uh, it's it's not looking like a good environment for Democrats in this uh, in this midterm, uh, and you also have the broader trends in Ohio. And look, I think that one of the challenging things for Democrats across the Midwest is that, for as poorly as they did. They've done, you know, particularly in 2016 and also in 2020 to a large extent, um, in small town and rural areas, and there are lots of those kinds of places across the Midwest, and there's probably more room for them to fall. And so the, the, the worry, I think, if you're a Democrat is that in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, where there are um, important races this year, you know, Gretchen Whitmer's reelection campaign for governor in Michigan, you've got two gubernatorial races in you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you've got Senate races in those states too. Um, the worry for Democrats is that their problems in kind of outstate areas just get worse. And if that happens, the margins are already pretty narrow at the statewide level. So it'd be hard for them to win in that instance. Well, we look forward to a new book. (laughs) Kyle Gondick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, President Biden is back on the road, and one stop will highlight the ongoing effort to keep weapons flowing to Ukraine. The president plans to visit a plant in Alabama producing Javelin missiles. The Senate could begin considering that $32 billion aid package to Ukraine as well, plus try to make headway on a COVID relief bill, all while waiting a federal court challenge to Title 42, that public health order keeping some migrants out of the country due to the pandemic. And we will have primary election results to digest. So until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.